confident that in the midst of celebration and in the midst of uh, sadness, that God still has a good word for us this morning. And so um, I, I hope you'll open up your ears and your hearts to hear what he has to say. We're continuing in our series called The Story. And so if you have your copy of The Story, uh, we're in chapter 21. Uh, if you have uh, the old-fashioned version, uh, the Bible, uh, you can open to Nehemiah chapter 1. That's where we're going to spend some time today. But we've reached a momentous day, uh, it, the end of the Old Testament. Uh, today is our last day in the Old Testament. If you've been with us since we started the story and you've been reading along with us, I have to tell you, you have now read uh, the entire story of the Old Testament. Now, if you're reading in your Bible, what you're going to notice is that Nehemiah is not at the end of the Old Testament. And maybe you were reading that this week and you go, really, this is, this is it? There's still about 10 books left after this. But I, I'm going to tell you that we have finished, we've already covered a lot of what's after this. We're going to end the, the, the Old Testament with Nehemiah. And, uh, and maybe for you, it's a day to celebrate. I mean, maybe it's the first time that you've ever read the Old Testament. Uh, is anybody in here that's willing to admit this is the first time they've ever read from beginning to end the story of the Old Testament? Anyone? Anyone? No? Okay. Maybe a couple people. Good. Thank you for that. Thanks for that honesty. But maybe you didn't finish, or maybe you got distracted, or maybe you came late. I just want to encourage you not to be discouraged that in just a few weeks, we're going to start the New Testament. We're going to start that on September the 15th, and you get a, a new chance to read the entire story of Jesus along with us, the entire New Testament and what God is going to do. And we're going to watch as God's perfect plan continues to unfold his plan to rescue a fallen world. But for now, Old Testament chapter 21 of the story, we'll start in Nehemiah 1. Now, as we've discussed the last couple of weeks, uh, the people of God, who we call the nation of Israel, are in exile. They had been captured by the empire of Babylon, which was then taken over by the Persian empire. And a couple of weeks ago, we said that the first Persian king, Cyrus, you remember we were talking about Ezra, said the first Persian king, Cyrus, rose to power in 539 BC, and he let the Israelites go. He decided that the Israelites who were living in Babylon uh, could go free and go back to their home in Judah, uh, most of them to Jerusalem, and build the temple. Now, as you read Nehemiah or as you read the story, what you'll find is that this group that's returned to Jerusalem is referred to now as the Jewish remnant. So if you see that phrase, uh, that's who it's referring, referring to. But some of them stayed behind in Persia. They, they got comfortable with their life, and they decided to stay behind. And that's where we're going to pick up the story almost 100 years later, somewhere around the year 444 B.C., with a man named Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is a Jew, uh, but he's living in the house of the king of Persia, a king named Artaxerxes. Now, if you were here last week and you heard about Esther, the king's name was Xerxes. This is not the same man. This is quite a bit later. Uh, the king's name is Artaxerxes, and we'll start Nehemiah 1.1. Nehemiah 1.1, 1, 1. and the, the verses will be on your screen uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, now the months were different back then, okay? Uh, the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Susa is where the king's palace was, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant who had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is in the king's palace in Persia, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and he sees somebody who comes from Jerusalem. He says one of his brothers, I don't know if it's his literal brother or if it's one of his uh, brothers in the faith, but he sees this man and he starts asking them about the people who've gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Then verse four, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
And so Nehemiah is living a comfortable life. He's living in a palace uh, in the service of the king. Now, what we find out a few verses later is that Nehemiah's job is he's actually the cupbearer to the king. And so his job is to uh, bring the king his drink and then to taste it to make sure it's not poisoned. And so as long as nobody's trying to poison the king, Nehemiah's got a pretty cush job, right? He, he goes, he gets to drink the finest wine and take it to the king. And, and if he doesn't uh, croak after a while, uh, the king knows that it's safe to drink. Now you can see he is a trusted advisor, right, to King Artaxerxes. You're only going to put somebody in that position that you trust. But, but he hears this story about his homeland, and how his homeland is in ruins. And, and, and many of his friends, you know, his brothers and sisters, his nieces and nephews that went back home to Jerusalem are, are living in this place that's unprotected. It's completely unsafe. The walls are broken down. The, the gates have been burned. It's, it, it breaks Nehemiah's heart. And he becomes really sad. He becomes so sad that he sits down and cries. It becomes his obsession. He, he just hears this and he thinks, I've got to do something about that. You know, this is what we talked about last week. If you were here, uh, Paul came and talked about the story of Esther. And, and I hope, if you were here, that you've taken some time this week to pray about uh, what your cause is and what your gifts are and how God may be trying to line those things up. But I wonder, do you have anything in your life like that right now? Anything that when you hear about it, when you think about it, it just breaks your heart. And you think, I've got to do something about that. Is there anything that you see or you hear about that you think, you know, that's an injustice. It's not fair. I need to do something about that. Or these people need help. They don't have anyone to speak up on their behalf. I need to do something about that. Or, or personally, you know, how about my family is falling apart? Nobody's going to do anything about that except me. I need to do something about that. Or, or this habit is taking control of my life. I need to do something about that. And it becomes the one thing that you know you need to do. It's the one thing that you set your mind to, and it becomes maybe after your relationship with God, it becomes your top priority. Well, that's where Nehemiah finds himself right now. And so what does he do? Well, the second half of verse 4 tells us. Uh, Nehemiah 1.4, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, this is his first step. You know, he sits down and he mourns, and then he, he prays and he fasts before God. Now, a lot of us, when we're trying to make a decision, right, we'll say, I'm going to pray about that. Well, that's not what this is, okay? This is Nehemiah sitting down. For several days, he prays. And, and not just praise, but he fasts. And we don't, we're not really good at talking about fasting in the church uh, because person, I don't like to do it, uh, quite frankly, because I don't like to deprive myself. Uh, but I'm telling you that there's nothing that will help you listen to the will of God more than fasting from something. You know, there's, there's nothing like taking food away from your life or, or, or music or media or internet or, or sweets or whatever it is you decide to fast from to help you focus in on what God has to say. I mean, if you get those cravings every time and you think, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me through this? Now, you will hear from a God in a way that you've never heard from him before. So this is what Nehemiah does. He gets this message from God that he's got to do something. And so here's what he does. He goes before the king uh, like he normally does, but this time he's sad. Okay, he puts on his sad face. He's mourning for his people, and it shows on his face. And so skip ahead to Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Okay, this is Jerusalem he's talking about. And so he asked the king for permission because remember, he's a trusted advisor to the king. Uh, Nehemiah is a slave. He is not an employee. He doesn't get vacation time. All right, and so he's got to get permission from the king to do this. And the king agrees. 
But he doesn't just stop with asking for permission. I want you to hear this, okay? Nehemiah, uh, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber uh, to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Now, there's a good lesson here for all of us, okay? There's something I want you to hear in this that maybe we don't talk about all the time. Nehemiah asks for help, okay? He needs the king's help to get this done, but he doesn't just ask for help. He's also done his homework, hasn't he? You can read it in there. He knows what gates he needs to rebuild. He knows what kind of timber he needs. He knows who he needs to ask for permission. So many of us want to go to God and ask for help, but we're not willing to do our homework, right? And so what Nehemiah does is he does his homework first, and then he goes to the king to ask for help. He asks for reinforcements. He wants the king to clear the way of any obstacles he might face on this way to accomplishing this big, important goal. See, here's what Nehemiah knew that I think you and I kind of inherently know. Uh, We know intuitively that this is true. And it's this, on your way to your goal, you're going to face opposition. You know, if you have a goal, if you're going to do something big uh, in your life, for your family's life, or for God, you're going to face opposition. I wonder, just a show of hands, how many of you have ever tried something big and have faced opposition? Maybe even now. How many of you have done that? Yeah, a lot of hands in the room. You guys know this already. No matter what your goal is, if you're doing it for the right reason, to, to improve your life, uh, to serve other people, to, to help your family, or to glorify God, whatever it is, you are going to face opposition. Nehemiah knew this. And we see in the very next verse, we see what happens. Nehemiah 2.10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So here we meet Nehemiah's enemy. Notice that Sanballat and Tobiah were not disturbed for any other reason that they knew that somebody was going to go help this group of people, this other group of people that didn't have anybody speaking up on their behalf. Nehemiah was called to go help them, and that disturbed Tobiah and Sanballat. And so uh, it's through this opposition, though, and through Nehemiah's response to this opposition that we get our lesson for today. And it's a lesson that's so good, it's a phrase that's so good and so meaningful that I guarantee you, you are going to leave here today and you are going to use this phrase sometime today. I mean, I heard a preacher talk about this a couple of years ago and it has changed my life. It has changed the way, literally, that I deal with opposition. And we're going to talk about that. I hope it'll do the same thing for you. But before we talk about that, Let's look at the story and see how Nehemiah's enemy tries to disrupt the building of the wall. And I think there's, that's valuable for a reason, too, because I think it shows us, uh, especially if you're doing something big for the kingdom of God, it shows us how our enemy works, too. So you have an enemy, Satan, uh, who wants to stop you from doing things of great value. He wants to stop you from improving your life. He wants to stop you from helping people find their way back to God. He wants to stop you to, from doing things for the kingdom of God. And your enemy, Jesus said, came to steal kill, and destroy. You know, he wants to steal your joy. He wants to kill your dreams. He wants to destroy your ministry. It's his job to make sure that you don't believe in yourself, that when you go to do something great, you start to doubt your ability to do it. It's your enemy's job to make sure that you don't carry out any important task, that you don't accomplish any goal, especially if you're going to give the glory to God. And he'll use whatever is at his disposal to make sure that happens. He'll use your circumstances. He'll use your thoughts. 
He'll even use other people. And we see that in the story of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah gathers his people and together he gives this charge. Let us arise and rebuild. And immediately, here comes old Sambalat. We skipped ahead to verse 19, Nehemiah 2.19. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and we get a new enemy here, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? And so the first thing that Sambalat tries, this first tactic, is the same one that your enemy will likely use. And these are in your notes if you want to write them down. There are three of them. The first one is this. Your enemy wants to distract you. Your enemy wants to distract you. We've talked for the last few weeks about how easily distracted we are as a people and as a culture. Today, uh, we have more chance for distraction than any other time in history, and, and that makes the enemy's job really easy. And these guys say, what are you doing, really? I mean, are you rebelling? Is that what this is all about? Is that why you're here? You know, trying to make De- Nehemiah doubt his intentions. He's going to think about other things. You know, could I use my time in a more effective way, maybe? Now, in, in your life, it might look like this. I could spend time with my kids right now, but I still haven't solved level 97 of Candy Crush Saga, and so I've got to do that first. Or how about this? I could read my Bible right now, but I'm right in the middle of the new season of Arrested Development on Netflix. I've got to get that done. You know, I, I could spend some time praying, but didn't I already pray about that yesterday? You know, I could start a new outreach event for the people in my neighborhood, but will it really make a difference? I mean, will people come? Do people care about that? What, what good can one person do? You know, it's all distraction. And like I said, in 2013 in the United States, we have more opportunities for distraction in our pocket than most people that we've ever known have ever had, you know? And it's so subtle, we often don't even know what's happening. And that's just how your enemy likes it. It makes it so easy for him to distract you. So let's skip ahead to Nehemiah 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it will break down their wall of stones. And this shows the second tactic that your enemy will use, that if he can't distract you, your enemy wants to discredit you. Your enemy wants to discredit you. He wants to make you look bad in the eyes of others, uh, maybe even in the eyes of your friends and your family. What you're doing is not important. You know, people have tried it before. Besides, you're a sinner. You can't serve in that ministry. You're not perfect like the other people in your church. You can't tutor those kids at your school. You don't even have your degree. You can't write that book. You've never written anything of value before. You can't kick that habit. You've already tried that before. You can't take that job. You're just a failure. You can't lose that weight. You were born with big bones. You can't make that team. You're not athletic enough. You can't have a great marriage. The two of you will never be on the same page. And so many of these attempts to discredit us start right here and end right here inside our own heads. And they're so effective. We're so good at listening to condemnation, it's often enough to make us stop from trying anything worthwhile. Now, I'm not saying that every voice inside our head comes from your enemy. Okay, in fact, God talks to us in that way too, and God will often use that to correct us. But let me give you a little tip, a little clue as to how you know when it's God talking to you and when it's your enemy. Okay, when God corrects you, he corrects you lovingly and specifically. When Satan discredits you, he does it harshly and generally. So if you think, 
When I said that, I should have been more compassionate. That's probably from God. But if you think, I can never say anything right, that comes from your enemy. If you think, singing is not my strong suit, maybe I should serve somewhere else. That's probably from God. (laughs) If you think, I've got nothing to offer, that's from your enemy. In a very general sense, I need to get better comes from God. I suck comes from Satan. In a very general sense. In fact, if you ever hear, I failed at that, that could come from God. But I'm a failure often always calls, comes from the enemy. You know, I, have a, a past, I heard a pastor say one time, failure is an event, never a person. You are not a failure. You know, Nehemiah 6, verse 1. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So, previous attempts haven't worked. So Sambalat and his cronies try this. They say, hey, why don't you come down from there? You know, go get off your ladder and let's go talk. You know, let's, let's go do lunch. We'll meet for coffee. We'll go to one of the many great coffee shops on the plain of Ono. You know, you pick your place. We'll just go to one of these villages and we'll sit down and we'll talk about this like reasonable people. But Nehemiah knows what's really going on. He says, but they were scheming to harm me. See, Nehemiah understood the third tactic that your enemy will use to stop you from doing something great, and it's this. Your enemy wants to deceive you. That's what we see here. They've run out of tactics, and so they lie. They flat out lie to Nehemiah just to get him to stop what they're doing. You know, your enemy will do that too. The apostle John wrote in the New Testament that Satan is the father of lies, that when he lies, he speaks his native language. And if he can't distract you or discredit you, he will, he will lie to you. He will deceive you to get you to stop. Now, I want you to hear how Nehemiah responds to Sambalat, Tobiah, and the others. Again, this is so good and so simple, but I promise you that even this week, you will use this phrase or some variation of it if you're doing something important and somebody tries to get you to stop. Okay? I'm going to read this from the New American Standard Bible because I like the way it's phrased, but really, in your Bible, the meaning is no different. Okay? This is what Nehemiah says, and it's really, really good. Nehemiah 6.3. So I sent messengers to them saying, get this, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Such a simple and effective way to deal with opposition. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. You know, Nehemiah knows and understands the importance of the work he's doing. He gets it. He gets what it means. And he knows that just like the temple we talked about a few weeks ago, that if he allows himself or his people to stop, to get distracted or discouraged, the work's going to stop. And it might stop for a long time. So he uses this phrase, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. You know, Nehemiah says four times that they sent this message And four times, he sent the same response back. So when the enemy tried to distract him, I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. When the enemy tried to discredit him, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. When the enemy tried to deceive him, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. This is so good. We need to say this together. Will you guys say this with me? I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. That's good, but this time say it like you mean it, okay? 
I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Such a simple and important phrase to remember when dealing with opposition. And especially if you're doing something that's so big or so important or something that will bring glory to God. You know, Nehemiah stuck to his guns. And scripture tells us that in 52 days, the project was complete. You know, the wall was done. The city once again was safe. And the people celebrated. You know, no one, remember, no one who was living in Jerusalem at this time had ever lived in the city when there were walls around it. You know, it was invaded over a hundred years before. And, and, and so it had always been open to raiders and open to invading countries and to thieves. And they had no idea how much better their life would be if they could just stick to the project and get the work done. That They could turn to the enemy and say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. But because Nehemiah really understood what was important, the project was finished. And because he was able to stand up to that opposition that so desperately wanted to stop him, this great work was complete. And the Jews could move back into Jerusalem and feel safe. And God was glorified in all of it. Now, in the last few minutes we have, I just want to talk about why this is so important to you. Let's just talk about what that one thing might be for you. It's it's one thing that you know you have to do. You probably already know what it is. I mean, there's lots of things you could do to make your life better. But this is the one thing that if you could do it, it would change the course of your life. It would change the way your family relates to one another. It could change your ministry. If you could do this one thing, whatever it is, you know what it is, I don't, it could leave you in a better place. And and like I said last week in the story of Esther, we challenge you to think about your cause, your gifts, and how uh, you might use those gifts to help solve some injustice that you see around you. Well, maybe your one thing is that you need to complete that project. Like whatever God's laid on your heart, you need, to, you need to start that ministry. You know, you need to sign up to serve. You need to contact the school and talk to the principal uh, about coming in to serve. Um, you know, whatever it is, you need to start that 501c3 organization. You know, that God has given you this thing on your heart, this great project, and you have to, uh, you're going to get a lot of opposition. You're going to get friends that are saying, you know, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. It's not worth it. You're going to get people that, that are going to oppose you, and you need to be able to look them in the eye and say, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Uh, for some of you, that one thing is a habit you have to break. You know, some of you um, are trying to quit smoking. You've been trying for years, and maybe you've quit, and then you started, and you've quit, and you've started, and you always tell your friends, you know, quitting smoking is the easiest thing I've ever done. I've done it five times this year. You know, but it keeps coming back, and you know that your life would be so much better, and your food would taste better, and your family would be happier if you could just quit. But, but people tell you, those friends just keep inviting you to those places. You know, you keep going out to those, those bars or the few places that you can smoke anymore, or you keep going out on break at work, and, and you just have one. It's not going to hurt. You need to be able to look them in the eye and say, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Some of you drink too much. You know how you know if you drink too much? If anybody has ever told you, you drink too much, it's probably a good indication. How do you know they're telling the truth? Well, let me tell you, they didn't want to tell you that. And they thought about it, and they prayed about it, and they agonized about it, and they worried that it wasn't any of their business. And finally, they got up the courage to tell you, I think you drink too much, and you blew them off. But they're worried about you. They're concerned about your well-being. And, 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 and you think about it. And from time to time, you maybe think about stopping. But then, again, your friends just invite you out to those places. You need to be able to look them in the eye and say, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. You know, for some of you, maybe that habit is prescription drugs. And you know it's a problem because you've got bottles in your counter that you don't even remember what they're prescribed for. And you've got doctors 
plural, that are prescribing them for you. You need to be able to go to that pharmacist and, or go to that doctor and say, I am doing a great work. I need to quit this. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. You know, for some of you, it's not a project to complete. It's not a habit to break, but maybe it's a relationship to restore. Uh, for so many of you, uh, maybe it's your marriage. You know, that you know that you would be better off and your family would be better off if you would just invest in your marriage, if you would spend time on reconciling the two of you back together, but you're ready to pull the trigger. You're, you're ready to walk out. And you don't care what it does to your kids. At this point, you're just worried about you. You need to work on that. You need to be able to, to look that problem in the eye and say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. You know, for some of you, that relationship you need to restore is with your ex. And, and I know that he cheated on you. I know she walked out on you. And I know that it was bad. And, and, and maybe you've even thought you forgave them, but sometimes it's so hard. You know, it's so hard to to be able to even want something good to happen to them. But your kids are depending on you to have a good relationship with their mom or their dad. And you need to be able to, you don't have to be besties, okay? But you got to be able to look at each other and, and be civil with one another and be able to have your kids go back and forth and have somewhat of a normal life. And to do that, you've got to look at that problem straight in the eye and you've got to say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And for some of you, that relationship's with your family. Now, I know what your mom said to you, or I know your dad, what your dad did to you when you were little. But you've got to be able to forgive them. Again, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Now, for some of you, it's not a relationship to restore, but it's a relationship to end. I mean, maybe you're living with somebody who's not your husband, not your wife. And you know it's not right, and you've tried to make it right. You've tried to do the right thing, but from time to time, you know, they say, come on, baby, let's just try it. Let's give it one more try, you know. She'll say, oh, okay, you can move out tomorrow, but why don't we spend the night together tonight? You need to be able to look that person in the eye, look him in the eye, look her in the eye, and say, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And maybe for you, it's not a, it's not a habit to break or a relationship to restore or a relationship to end. Maybe for you, it's, it's a debt to pay off. You know, you've, you've, you've tried, you've thought about it, and you, but you just keep living life like you're living it, and you, you think, you know, if I could just get rid of those student loans... I mean, if I could just pay off those student loans, our life would be so much easier and the stress level would just drop and, and the fighting would stop and the phone calls would end. But then you get home from work on Monday and I'm stressed and I'm tired and we just need to go out to dinner tonight. You need to be able to look that restaurant menu in the eye and say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Or for you, maybe that debt is your car and you're finally going to get that car paid off, but the new one is so nice. And it's got a sunroof, and it's got XM radio, and it's got those nice little bun-warming seats that make you feel so good, and your old one has 50,000 miles on it, so it's time to upgrade really anyway, isn't it? You need to go look that car salesman in the eye and say, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I'm not coming down. Why should I why come down from this ladder and talk to you while I'm trying to pay off this debt? For some of you, that one thing maybe is school. You know, you started it for a while, and you had good intentions, but, but you quit. And maybe you just thought, I'm going to take a semester off. But a semester turned into a year, and then a year into two, and, and now it's five, and you think, you know what, it's too late to go back. And your friends and family are saying, I know, I want you here with me on the weekends. I don't want you to, having your nose in some book. I don't want you doing homework. But you know your life would be so much better if you could just finish that one thing, if you could just finish strong and finish that project. You need to be able to look at your friends and look at your family and say, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And finally, for some of you here, um, that one thing is you, you desperately need a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
and you thought about it, and you've been coming to church, and you've been hearing what I've been talking about, or you've been hearing what some other pastor's talking about, and you go, you know what, that sounds good, but I still have doubts. I mean, did God really create the earth in seven days? You know, did Noah really save all these animals? Did, did Jonah really go into the belly of a fish and, and survive after three days? And you're, these things just keep coming up in your mind, and you keep thinking, and it's distracting you from what you know to be true. And what you know to be true is that Jesus Christ came to earth for you. And he put his sins on, or your sins on his shoulder, and he went to the cross and they died with him. And then he was raised from the dead. And that he, after he was raised from the dead, that he appeared to people, hundreds of people at one time. And that was all written down in the scriptures for us while those witnesses were still alive. And you read that and you think, yes, that's the God I want. That's the Jesus I want. I want the Jesus who went to the cross for me and who defeated death and who overcame the grave. But you still keep thinking about these doubts. You need to just look those doubts in the eye and say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Whatever it is in your life that you're trying to do and that's, do that's great, your enemy is going to try to distract you and discredit you and deceive you. And if you just carry that phrase with you, if you use it whenever you feel that coming on, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I know that you'll finish whatever God started in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for all the work that you do through Scripture, but God, specifically for this, because we all face opposition. And we all know it's coming. And even when we think about, some of us are just cringing right now because we're thinking about that one thing that I've got to start and we know that it's coming. That tomorrow morning we'll get to work and somebody's going to make some smart aleck remark about why are you even trying that? You know, why are you wasting your time? They're going to try to distract us and discredit us and deceive us. But God, we know that you have called us to do this one thing, whatever it is, and that you are going to do a great work in our life and in our family, in our ministry, if we can just get it done, if we can just stick to the program. And so, God, right now, I just want to raise up to you anybody in this room who is having doubts or concerns or worries about opposition. And so I'm just going to ask you, every, every eye is closed, every head is bowed. If you're in this room and you're, having, if you're facing opposition even right now, I want to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Thank you for those hands. Thank you, hands all over the room. Thank you for that. God, I just lift them up to you right now. I pray for their well-being. I pray for this project they're trying to complete, this good, great work that they are trying to do. I pray that you would let them, give them the strength, the power, the encouragement to continue that. And even right now, I know some of you are, are hearing this, and at the very end, you hear, that's what I need. I need Jesus in my life. I need to make that commitment. And if you're here and and you want to make a commitment this morning to Jesus Christ, if you want him to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior, you can just pray this prayer with me. Just pray it silently in your seat. Say, God, I need you. I I admit I've messed up. I admit I've sinned, but I need you in my life right now. I need your son to come and take take the punishment for my sins. I need you to send your Holy Spirit to give me wisdom and guidance and direction. God, we just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that through the good and the bad, you continue to work in us. And God, we come to you this morning with worship. In Jesus' name, amen.